50s, the ketchup commercial for Heinz 57, and Carly Simon singing Anticipation. I want to point out to you, I did not try to sing that for you, but I remember the ad campaign very clearly. And I remember it so clearly, I think, because I had so often sat down with a bottle of ketchup and tried to get it to pour out quickly. And there was no making it pour out quickly. You could shake it, you could beat it. What it took was just a very calm tapping of the neck of the bottle. So you're always in anticipation of the taste of the ketchup. Well, behind, the, behind that played Carly Simon's hit song, and, uh, of course, I remember that, too. I'm old enough. But today, we're talking about a different kind of anticipation. 120 disciples had been gathered in the upper room, and they were anticipating fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made, a promise that he would send them a promised one, a helper, that would bring power upon them. Now, they didn't really know truly what to expect. But I can tell you that neither they nor Jerusalem or anyone else was disappointed when the time came. Now, there's a small group of islands just off the west coast of Scotland called the Hebrides. And there's a, a, there was a widespread revival that broke out there in 1949. It started out as some discouraged ministers and pastors had started to get together and, and meet for prayer for a, an in, a spiritually impoverished area. And the Christians there were kind of convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit as they prayed. And as they confessed those sins and allowed themselves to be filled with the Spirit anew, revival broke out. That seems to be the story of revival breaking out throughout history. People get together and pray. And they're convicted by the Holy Spirit and revival breaks out. Well, before long, people throughout the island of godlessness and their immorality. And men and women began streaming into these meetings to find God and to be saved. Taverns closed for lack of business. <laughs> uh, prayer meetings overflowed. God's work flourished. And the churches were filled with new converts and backslidden saints. And it all started by prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit to convict sin. Now, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers in the Old Testament like he does now in the New Covenant. It's a fact that's contrasted here in Acts chapter 1 and then in Acts chapter 2 as well. In Acts 1, the disciples are told to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then finally in Acts 2, he comes. In Acts 1, the disciples were equipped but in Acts 2, they're empowered with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, they were held back, if you will. But in Acts 2, they were sent forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what marks the difference between Acts 1 and 2. Now today, we want to look at what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon those 120 believers that were gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you'd like, to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. 
Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In the Old Testament, when believers encountered the presence of God, they had become accustomed to different sights and sounds, sights and sounds of power, such as lightning, thunder, and the voice of God, fire. And Pentecost was not a disappointment. Now, maybe you didn't know, but Pentecost means 50th, or 50 days. Penta, like Pentagon, uh, Pentathlon, speaks of the root five, 50, 50 days. It's because Pentecost came 50 days after Easter. That was the name given to the Jewish Feast of Weeks. It's also called the Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of First Fruits. It's one of the three great annual feasts that were celebrated in Jerusalem. It was established in Leviticus chapter 15, and the feast occurred 50 days after Passover, the feast during which Jesus was crucified, of course. Now, Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims from throughout the region, all around the Mediterranean, around the Middle Eastern region, and 120 of his disciples were gathered in the upper room, steadfastly maintaining their unity in prayer as they awaited the gift of the Spirit. In the New, Kings James, uh, New King James Version, verse 1 describes it this way. It says, When the day of Pentecost had finally or fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. If you remember in chapter 1, verses 4 to 5 and verse 14, it said this, And being assembled together with them, he, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they're all gathered together in one place, waiting, anticipating. And as we talked a couple weeks ago, they were spending their time in earnest prayer. And then they had one matter of business to take care of, and that was finding a replacement for Judas. And we talked about that last week. Now, although Jesus told the disciples to expect the Holy Spirit, Scripture gives the impression that his arrival was still somewhat a surprise. Luke describes it as sudden. Acts 2.2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, this was not just the sound of a, a strong natural wind. It was the sound of the power of God. The biblical Greek uses the same word, pneuma, for spirit and wind and breath. And the context determines which way it should be translated. In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus compared the Holy Spirit to the wind, using again the same Greek word 
for both. He said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. One of the commentators I read this week drew an interesting comparison between this passage as the beginning of the church and the beginning of man in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Physically, we got our life from the breath of God. And here at Pentecost, we get our spiritual life as God breathes the Holy Spirit upon us. The sound of the mighty rushing wind served two purposes. First, it got the disciples' attention. It let them know immediately that their waiting was over and that God was on the move. Secondly, the sound would have caught the attention of the pilgrims that were close by in town, there for the feast. They would have been attracted to that, to realize something's going on. In verse 3, we see the sights of this event. It says, And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. The, the tongues, as of fire, were not literal flames. It says, as of fire. It's indicative that a, a simile was being used here. It was a metaphor for how the Holy Spirit appeared in that upper room. Everyone in the upper room was baptized by the Holy Spirit at once into the church, into the body of Christ, a spiritual body of believers. We refer to that event as the baptism of the Spirit which was prophesied by Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and also by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In John chapter 1, verse 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's when he introduced the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. The day of the believers in the upper room were baptized by the Holy Spirit is the church's birthday. The disciples had believed in Christ, but hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit because Christ had not yet ascended into heaven. And he said, when I go, I will send another. But once he did, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in the church, in the group of believers who identified themselves with Jesus. This baptism by the Spirit is the defining bond that binds all believers together. It's established as an invisible union, if you will, among us and around us, making us identifiable to one another by the same Spirit dwelling in each of us. I don't know if you've ever gone someplace where you were a stranger and you were introduced to somebody or you just met somebody and you could just tell, hmm, this person knows the Lord. It's, a, it, it's kind of an almost scary but reassuring thing to happen to you, especially when you're in a foreign country <laughs> and you run into a group of people that you know know Jesus Christ. In Acts 11, when the Spirit came upon the Gentiles in Cornelius' household, Peter gave clarity to the happening at Pentecost 
It was by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts eleven fifteen. 15. It says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And Paul clarifies that becoming a Christian means being baptized into one body, the body of all believers in Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Seems like today there seems to be some confusion about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some see it as something that's experienced following salvation. But that's not a biblical position. If you're saved, you have been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. The moment your heart is surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit comes to indwell you. And the verse that we just read in 1 Corinthians speaks to that. Even the carnal believers at Corinth had been baptized in the Spirit, into the body of Christ. It happens when we, again, when we believe in Christ. It's not something that happens after salvation. Think about this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a unique work of God. It was unknown before Pentecost in Acts 2. And believers after that time share in the benefit and the experience of that original, unique work of God. Secondly, baptism of the Holy Spirit is a universal work of God. Every Christian, everyone who's ever accepted Christ as Savior, has been baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian and someone ever asks, have you been baptized by the Spirit? You can say, yes, I have. Thirdly, baptism of the Holy Spirit is an unrepeated work of God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't something to be sought by Christians. Since they already have it, they don't need to do it again. You can only be baptized by the Spirit the same number of times that you can be saved. One time. You are saved. If you are saved, you are saved, period. If you are saved, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an unemotional work of God. Now, Some Christians believe that the baptism of the Spirit should be an emotional experience. Incorrect again. The baptism is a spiritual work of God, apart from our participation or sometimes even our knowledge. Sometimes when we're saved... Yet, did you feel a weight lifted from your shoulders? You hear that in testimonies a lot. The moment I gave my heart to the Lord, I just felt this weight lifted from me. Well, the weight of your sin was being lifted from you, and the Holy Spirit was coming into you. Some Christians aren't even aware that they've been baptized by the Spirit until they're taught that truth from Scripture. Well, that's not to say there's not any emotion in being saved. But that emotion is the joy and the celebration of being saved. The joy of salvation, if you will. It's not an emotion that's connected with baptism of the Spirit. Fifthly, baptism of the Holy Spirit is a unifying work of God. The purpose of baptism of the Spirit is to create one body to be God's people. Now, before Pentecost, 
only Jews were, quote, the people of God. But since Pentecost, Galatians 3, 8, 28 tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. God's people know no racial, ethnic, or gender, or social boundaries or barriers. There is one body, all of whom believe in Christ. Lastly, in the sights and sounds of the Spirit's coming, we see the speech. Now, perhaps the most controversial and difficult thing to understand about this whole event was the speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Scripture says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The supernatural speech that took place at Pentecost was not some unintelligible, ecstatic utterance. It was human speech uttered in known human languages by people who had no experience in those languages before the Spirit gave them that utterance. Those 120 disciples of Jesus received the ability to speak the languages of the Jews and of other language groups. Unfortunately, the translators that, that were responsible for the King James Bible inserted the word unknown in the English text. But the word unknown is not in the Greek text. It would have been more accurately translated other tongues as it is here uh, in my ESV and I believe in the New King James as well. In verse 6, the people in Jerusalem in the crowd heard their own language being spoken. So actual languages were being spoken, but it was a miracle of speaking, not a miracle of hearing. It was people speaking own languages that they had never learned. Imagine yourself on a mission field. I always imagine myself in, in Russia someplace. <laughs> and all of a sudden, being able to, to preach fluently in that language, in Russian, even though you've never been trained in the language. I'd like to imagine that, but I never tried it. <laughs> uh, even when I got to know a little bit of the language, I still never tried preaching that way. And uh, one of the guys that I followed over there was Dr. Robert Provost from Master's College originally, the president of Slavic Gospel Association. Dr. Provost has a bachelor's degree in Russian language. He never speaks or preaches in Russian either. Best to let them translate into their own language. So this was a miracle by the Holy Spirit. Also notice in verse 4 that the ability to speak in other tongues came from being filled with the Spirit, not baptized by the Spirit. It says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All the disciples were filled with the Spirit and spoke with other tongues. Both the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit occurred at the same time at Pentecost. But they were not the same thing. I'm going to show you a series of slides here. I'm going to try and contrast the difference between the indwelling of the Spirit, or the baptism of the Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit. First of all, baptism in the Spirit happens once at salvation. 
being filled with the Spirit happens throughout the Christian life. There are times when we're filled with the Spirit, we're doing God's work, and we're, our relationship with the Lord is close and intimate, and there are times when we take our eyes off of Him and we walk away. Some, sometimes we even get way out of fellowship. The Spirit still indwells you as a Christian, but you are not filled, perhaps, with the Spirit at the time. The baptism of the Spirit was a past event. Being filled with the Spirit is a present reality. The baptism of the Spirit is for every believer. Being filled with the Spirit happens to obedient believers. Baptism of the Spirit was never commanded. And yet we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5. Baptism of the Spirit is a positional truth. It speaks to where your position is in Christ. The filling of the Spirit is more of an experiential practice. Being filled with the Spirit and obeying. Baptism of the Spirit places believer in the body of Christ. Being filled with the Spirit enables the believer to live for Christ. And with the baptism of the Spirit, the Spirit is resident in one's life. Being filled with the Spirit means that He is president of your life, in control. One that you follow, one that you obey. The most important thing to remember about the baptism and the filling of the Spirit is that they are separate events and have different purposes. So, that's a look at some of the sights and sounds of the coming of the Holy Spirit. But I want us to also look at a key response to the coming of the Holy Spirit in verses 5 to 11. Acts 2, 5 to 11. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. In this passage, Luke lists about 15 different places the pilgrims in Jerusalem came from. More than a dozen languages and dialects were spoken by the disciples and heard by the crowds that day. Notice in verse 7, though, one of the most amazing things to them was that the speakers were Galilean, who were thought of as the uneducated. I think Galilean translates into English as Fresno. <laughs> Sorry if anybody else is from Fresno, but I'm from there, so I can say that, okay? <laughs> they were astonished that these guys were Galileans. They were thought as being uneducated, kind of country bumpkins of their day compared to the educated. It was these unrefined Jews from the boondocks of Galilee 
who were speaking the wonderful works of God in all of these languages in verse 11. It was common in Jewish liturgy to recite the acts of God on behalf of his people. And that's what they were hearing in their own language. Maybe the main reason that God worked this miracle was kind of to, to jumpstart the missionary movement that he had given his disciples orders to start. When the Pentecost crowds returned to their homes, they carried testimony of their memories of this incredible miracle that happened in Jerusalem. They began telling people, you should have seen what happened in Jerusalem. This, this sound came from out of heaven and tongues of fire was on every one of the disciples and they began speaking the, the mighty works of God in our language. And thus the gospel began to go out in different places. I have no doubt that many of the people that were in that crowd were among the 3,000 that were saved when Peter preached the gospel. And they took that message with them as well when they went home, across the Mediterranean or into the Middle Eastern world, telling of the miracle of speaking in other tongues. Which gets me to that place that we're going to get used to. So what? We'll look at the reaction to the coming of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. That reaction began the day of Pentecost, and it continues into today, doesn't it? The, the mighty acts of God, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Jesus in general, is mocked by a skeptical world, by an unbelieving world. The, the Jerusalem crowds reacted differently, of course. Scripture says some were amazed, some were perplexed. In verse 13, again, they even mocked and said, oh, they're just drunk. Paul used being drunk with wine in a negative metaphor in Ephesians 5.18 to illustrate a person being out of control and to encourage being filled with the Spirit. He said, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to do things that some people are going to think it's kind of strange because you're believers, because you're obedient to Christ. Similarly, a person filled with the Spirit yields control of his life to another, that is, to God through the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, those 120 disciples definitely were out of control. <laughs> they were speaking languages they had never learned because the Holy Spirit was in control of their minds and their wills. Peter, who just 50 days before had, had been ashamed and afraid to even admit he knew Jesus Christ, stood and preached fire and brimstone. And all the apostles had newfound courage to face persecution for their missionary endeavors. They were not acting like themselves then. 
they were filled, not with wine, but with the Holy Spirit. When we accept Jesus Christ, we also get the Holy Spirit, don't we? But we choose to live in His power or not. Every day we need to pray. We need to confess known sin. That's part of what we do at communion. We examine ourselves. Is there any unconfessed sin inhibiting the relationship I have with Jesus? And if so, get it out of the way. So we confess known sin and claim God's forgiveness that Jesus won for us on the cross. And then we ask God to fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit to allow us to live a supernatural life for Him. And when the church does that, the world takes notice, just like it did at Pentecost. The filling of the Holy Spirit was the secret to the power of the first century church. It started at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the secret to the power of the 21st century church. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't repeat Pentecost, but we can duplicate its impact if we'll just be filled with the Spirit and live in this world and witness for Jesus Christ as he instructed those disciples and as he has instructed us. Would you pray with me? Father, anytime we get out of control sometimes, we think we can understand you. And I'm sure that in each other, our lives here, we can come up with a variety of ways that you have reaffirmed to us that there is no true understanding you completely. Lord, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for Jesus, for his life, for his ministry among us. I thank you especially for the salvation that he won for us on the cross, that he, he earned for us on our behalf, that he stood between us and damnation. And he gave up his body and his blood so that we might have eternity with you. We could be reconciled to you. But Lord, I'm also grateful that you chose then not to leave us alone as orphans, as it says in Scripture, and that you sent the Holy Spirit to be with each of us, with everyone who believes. We have the Holy Spirit within us to be filled with that Spirit, to be obedient. In some cases, not. Lord, I would pray that if there's anyone in this room today who has not been to the place where they have been willing to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they might do that today. And that they would also then be baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ as a believer by the Holy Spirit coming to indwell them as well. I pray that for all of the lost, Lord, and especially those who might be within the sound of my voice or the voice of those that are in this room. And Lord, I ask that you allow us to be filled with your Spirit and carry that testimony, that witness, through your gospel to everyone that we meet. In Jesus' name.
Amen.